Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We are starting a new series this morning. Our normal approach to preaching is to preach through whole books of the Bible. And we set that aside for this summer as we went through a topical series on New Testament imperatives. But we're returning to a book of the Bible today. We intend to go through that chapter by chapter, more or less verse by verse. And that is the New Testament book of the Acts of the Apostles. The Bible has a number of different genres that make up this compiled book. And there's, uh, one of those genres is narrative history. Acts is a history book. It's been a long time since we've been in a narrative history. That is back in 2015 when we were going through the first half of the book of Genesis together. I think ever since then we've more or less been in an epistle or some other part of scripture than that. So this will be fresh for us. Um, I was planning to preach through Samuel this year. If you were around for the summer, you've probably heard me mention that. Um, But I believe that God has directed us to the book of Acts. And I think it's going to be very helpful to us at this time in our life. Also, in God's providence, not in my careful planning, because I was not planning to be an Acts, we concluded the summer series of imperatives on the Great Commission, which is a perfect setup to this study of Acts. In the Great Commission, Jesus sets out the mission of his church, sets before her this mission to make disciples of all the nations. And in the book of Acts, we see that mission empowered, gloriously empowered, and dramatically set into motion. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, many of them very long. We don't intend to to spend more than the year in this book, though, so we're going to have to keep quite a pace going, uh, hoping to finish by the end of the school year and taking breaks for the Advent season, Holy Week, and other incidental things that come up. Today, though, here at the beginning, rather than launching right into chapter one fully, I thought it'd be good to try to get an overview or give an introduction to this particular book by looking at some of the things that are about it in its background, some of the themes of this book, the interpretive challenge that it poses to us, and some concluding thoughts about why I think we need this book of Acts as a church. To help frame this introduction to the book of Acts, I want to read two short passages to us this morning. First from the Gospel of Luke, and then the first few verses of Acts chapter 1. If you turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 1, we're going to read 1-4 together. You can follow along on the screen. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, were, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught." And we turn also to Acts chapter 1. We'll read a few verses from here. 
The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of the Lord. So let's talk a little bit about the background of this book. The inspired human author of the Acts of the Apostles is a man named Luke, Lucas in Greek. This is the same Luke who wrote the gospel according to Luke. What do we know about Luke? Not a whole lot, actually. We believe that he was from Antioch in Syria, so a Syrian. Whether he was a Jew or a Gentile, we don't really know for sure. A lot of people suspect one or the other and have reasons for that. There were lots of Jews who were dispersed and living in the city of Antioch, so he could well have been a Jew. Paul, he knows Paul, we know that for sure, because Paul refers to him in his letter to the Colossians. He says, Luke, the beloved physician. So we know that Luke is some sort of doctor, like Dr. Spady was, like Dr. Goddard is. Luke is a physician. And he was a companion of Paul's on some of his missionary journeys. We know this. Um, And sometimes his sole companion. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy towards the end of his life, and he says, only Luke is with me. Paul has a high esteem for this man. People who shared and partnered in the gospel ministry with Paul and were his trusted partners, he refers to them as fellow workers, and that's how he refers to Luke in his letter to Philemon. He calls Luke a fellow worker. This close connection with Paul meant that Luke had firsthand knowledge of many of the things that he's writing about here in this book, because they chronicle some of Paul's missionary journeys. And Luke, we know Luke is in the story because he, he certainly turns from the um, saying they to we. All of a sudden, he'll just start referring to we were, we were doing this or we were doing that or I even. And so Luke appears in this book in that way. He doesn't name himself, though, by name. And you might wonder why. Why doesn't Luke, who's the historian, who's written two important books of the Bible, wasn't, why doesn't he help us out and mention who the author is directly? It's not that we don't know who, that he is the author. We have lots of good internal evidence and external evidence to tell us confidently that this is Luke, the author of the gospel, who's writing this book. Why doesn't he name himself? This is, he, you remember back in um, Luke chapter 1, he's, he's, as he's starting to lay out this gospel according, his, his gospel, his account of Jesus Christ, he says, um, he refers to the apostles themselves as servants of the word. Servants of the word. And I think Luke takes on this kind of modest, humble approach of view of himself as he's writing. He didn't see himself as really essential to the story he's telling. And naming himself is something, is, I think, or lacking, failing or choosing rather to not name himself, I think is a modest decision, a humble decision on his part. The apostle John doesn't name himself in the gospel of John. 
he talks about being the disciple that Jesus loved, but he doesn't name himself by name. And Luke takes the same kind of humble and modest approach. What was Luke's purpose in writing? Well, Luke's gospel and his acts of the apostles were first conceived to be a unit, one larger work together. And probably in their, when they were first published or distributed, were put together in one scroll together. It's a two-volume work that thematically holds together. Luke's gospel recounts, in his own words, all that Jesus began to do and teach during the time of his earthly life and ministry, from the days of his birth to his ascension to the Father. The book of Acts recounts what? It, it recounts for us what Jesus continues to do. It recounts for us what Jesus continued to do by his spirit through his witnesses, his apostles. This makes Luke's gospel the only gospel with a sequel. And it actually acts as a sequel to all of the gospels and a bridge between the gospel accounts and the New Testament epistles. Without this history, it would be much more difficult to understand what's going on in the epistles. And vice versa, the epistles, I mean, they, they serve one another very well. This is a very important book of the Bible. It's hard to underestimate its importance. Luke probably didn't give the book its title, The Acts of the Apostles. It appears that that term or that name, that title, was first given in the second century by Irenaeus, a church father. Some people have more recently suggested that it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because of how prominent the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in this book. He's referenced six, over 60 times. And so he's a main character, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We're going to refer to it as Acts or the book of Acts because that's just how it's been known throughout the centuries. Another curiosity about this book is that the Acts of the Apostles, as it's called, does not track all the ministry of all of the Apostles. Only a few of them are even named in this book. Andrew and James are briefly mentioned, and likewise Matthias, who's chosen in the first chapter to replace Judas the betrayer. But Luke's focus here is on two Apostles in particular. Peter at first, and much more on the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul takes, and, and is, is, takes up the bulk of this book and is the focus of this book. The 13th Apostle, as he's often called, the one who was chosen or chosen by God, appointed by God to be the, the Apostle to the Gentiles. One of Luke's main purposes in writing this book appears to be to explain how it was, why it was that the Gentiles become a predominant force in the church. Not just how that came to be, but why that came to be theologically or prophetically. Luke addresses both of his accounts, the gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, to a particular individual, which is interesting. He's writing to somebody called Theophilus. It has been suggested that Theophilus is not an actual person because the name, the, the name means dear to God, that this is a way that Luke is using to reference, like saying, dear Christian reader, dear, dear one to God, Theophilus. But I don't think so. 
He calls him most excellent Theophilus. I think it's much more likely that this is a real person, probably somebody of high standing in society, maybe in Rome, maybe it's a, a Gentile Roman leader who's recently taken an interest in Christianity, has, been, has heard some things, sees himself even as a disciple of Jesus, a follower of the way of Jesus, and Luke takes, uh, takes it upon himself to instruct this man very carefully because of his influence. Luke's stated goal in both accounts is given us in Luke chapter one, verse four. We read it, he said, I write so that you, Theophilus, may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. He wants him to know the exact truth. But the truth is not just a series of facts, of events, a chronicling of events. Luke gives lots of Old Testament prophecy. At key events, he brings in Old Testament prophecies to show that the meaning, the theological meaning of these events is huge. These are not just facts. These are not just events. These are, these are events that are pregnant with meaning prophetically. What, we're be, what, we're, what, I'm tell, what I'm laying out for you, the things that I'm telling you, God has announced from of old, and it's being fulfilled here and now among us. This is evident even in how Luke structures the book. Acts follows a very clear outline, which Luke derives from the final words spoken by Jesus on earth. Here's the final words of Jesus in his ministry on earth before he ascended to the Father. He says this, Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's Acts in a nutshell. That's the structure of Acts. Luke is telling that story, starting in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's how he structures it. Chapters 1 through 7 tell about the ministry of the, of the witness of the apostles in Jerusalem. Eight, chapters 8 to 12 tell about that witness and its influence in Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 to 20 about the ministry of gospel witness in the Gentile territories. And the final chapters, 21 to 28, about how gospel witness goes so far as to seat sit, sit itself even in, the, in Rome itself, the place of the Caesars, the capital city of the Gentile world. The advance of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome not only has geographic significance, here, then here, then here, but also symbolic significance, and we're going to talk about that more in a moment. What are some of the big themes in the book of Acts? The first theme is the transition from the old covenant to the new this is something that's happening here in Acts that we need to understand, and it's a big part of what's going on. Way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God entered into a covenant relationship with a man named Abram, a Chaldean. And you can read about God entering into this relationship in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. This covenant with Abram, who God renames Abraham, was a covenant of promise and blessing. 
You could kind of summarize it like this. God appears to Abram and he says to him three different times in different ways. He says basically this, Abram, I will be a God to you and you and all your descendants will be a people for me. I will bless you wherever you go. I will make you a great people. I will give you a land. I am yours and you are mine forever. That's the covenant. The history and the development, the fulfilling of that is the whole story of the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is. I mean, there's a setup with creation and the fall and, and, and the flood, and then the whole rest of the Old Testament is that being worked out and fulfilled in Abraham's life and the life of his descendants. Embedded in that covenant from the beginning is a promise of a seed which is ultimately fulfilled. It was fulfilled through Isaac initially, like this impossible child that came at the very end of his life, you know, nobody beyond hope. And here's a child given. That was, it was fulfilled in that way and then many physical descendants and the building of a great nation. But it was ultimately fulfilled in the advent of Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed of Abraham. There's also another promise that's embedded in the beginning and that is that this seed God would use to bless all the nations of the earth. Here's what it says in Genesis 12. This is the first conversation between God and Abraham. I guess you could call it a conversation. God does all the talking. But he says this, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in Genesis 17, the third time he talks to him, he says this, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. From the very beginning, that was promised. A, mul a multitude of nations? Bless the whole earth? The gospel accounts, the four gospels, tell us how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise to Abraham of a seed. That's a lot, a lot of ink is spilled just confirming that Jesus fulfills that promise, and that's what the Gospels focus on. This book of Acts focuses on how that promised seed ultimately begins to bless all the nations of earth. These two points of promise and fulfillment ultimately tie the Old Covenant and the New Covenant together in a way that means that they can't finally be separated or, or torn asunder or viewed as two different things. They are one thing. One plan of salvation that God has been working from the moment he talked to Abraham until today. And Acts is a, one of those transition moments where something big is happening. And we call it's, it's a transition from what's called an old covenant to a, the new covenant. But they're not different covenants fundamentally. They're one and the same under two administrations. One covenant under two administrations. And this new administration brings big changes. When we say it's one and the same, we don't mean to deny that there aren't big changes at work, significant things happening in how this covenant now is administrated. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. 
But we don't take away from this that means that they're fundamentally different, just that they're definitely more better. And in every way. Here's one way that the new covenant is better than the old, okay? Under the old covenant, Gentiles, you and me, Gentiles, non-Jews, were welcome to come in to the people of God, to the, to the, among the people of God, to come in if they voluntarily renounced their people, their people's gods, their country, and came to the people of God in their land and dwelt among them and worshiped their way, if they did that voluntarily, they were, invite, they were welcomed in. That was provided for in the law, and we see it happen in Scripture. There wasn't a lot of this, but it does happen. And they were considered God's people, Jews, and rightly worshipers of God. Under the new covenant, something radically different is happening. The gospel now goes out and, as it were, sets up shop in your land. Under the gospel administration, in order to worship God, you don't have to renounce your American citizenship and book a plane ticket and fly to Israel and dwell there to worship God in Jerusalem with, with his people. You are the people of God. The gospel has come to you and establishes the church here in Bloomington. We can worship the true God of heaven, the same God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here fully, as fully as anybody else anywhere else, in this way, with these freedoms, in this building. That's, that's a change, an administrative change, a big change that is starting to be implemented here in the book of Acts. It's responsible for a lot of the joy and the excitement that we see expressed in the book of Acts and also a lot of the tensions that we see under the surface and sometimes on the surface uh, in the book. There's conflict. In, in this imp change is hard. This is a big change. And change is often very good and necessary, but it is also very difficult, and it's particularly difficult for some people in this account to accept. And it's responsible for a lot of the tensions that are present in this book. People look back on the book of Acts, and they just think, oh, it's like utopia. We just got to get, what we need is to get back to the book of Acts, and there's ways in which that's true. That's why we're here studying this book. But there's a, what you have, well, you have to have eyes to see as we study is there's a lot of tensions and discomfort and difficulty and conflict that, that the apostles are scrambling hard and fast to stay ahead of and to figure out how on earth they're going to resolve it. They even have a big meeting right in the middle of the book and, and they bring everybody in into Jerusalem to try to sort out this issue and some of the implications of this change. That's a theme that runs throughout the book of Acts, and we need to understand it going in. Another big theme, this is probably the biggest theme in the book. It's the theme of the word of the Lord growing and spreading. The word of the Lord growing and spreading. The power of gospel proclamation is one of the most prominent themes in this book. 
At least 30% of all of the words in this book consist of sermons preached by the apostles or others that were servants of the word. 30% of this book is just sermons, either in something like their full form or in a summary fashion. Preaching, gospel proclamation, preaching the word is more conspicuous in this book even than the miracles. There's lots of miracles, lots of signs and wondrous things being accomplished. Um, when we talk about the acts of the apostles, we talk, we're thinking also of those deeds, but the, the main deed, the thing that's more conspicuous than anything else is the proclamation of the word of God. The structure of the book itself is designed to convey this emphasis on the ministry of the word. Luke chapter one, when he's starting out to make this big, long chronicling of everything, he calls the apostles eyewitnesses and servants of the word, servants of the word. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, which we read, he calls them his witnesses, people who are, have seen and now are made to testify. Their job is to testify about what they've seen in Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. At key transition points throughout this book, we get summary statements that emphasize the real story of this book. It helps us understand what Luke is driving at, what he wants us to keep our eye on in the sea. At all these transition places, there are these key summary statements. I want to read a few of them to you. They're really wonderful. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, the word of God kept on spreading. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, verse 24, we read, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Acts 13, 48 to 49 says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And then in Acts 19, verse 20, it says, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This is the real story of the book of Acts. The growth, progress, glorification, and power of the word preached. This is what we want to keep our eye on as we go through. The triumph of the word of God. Do you remember in the Great Commission how Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples? Remember that? Well, this whole advance into the world, from Jerusalem into the world, begins in Jerusalem, which David in Psalm, I think, 48 says, he calls it the city of the great king. Whose city is it? Who's the king? Jesus is the king. And this is his holy city, the place up till this point he has made his name to dwell. That's where this story, this account of Acts begins, there, the city of the great king. And by the end of this book, as we've advanced outward into Gentile territory, where do we end the book? In Rome. This is the, these are the final words of the book of Acts. Acts 28, 31, we find Paul there preaching the kingdom of God 
and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. What does Luke want us to get? What is, what is he trying to communicate by leaving it there? Surely he knew there was more to the story. Paul ends up dying and being killed as a martyr, martyr, martyr shortly after this. But what is Paul, or what is Luke, why is he ending it with that word unhindered? To show the power of the gospel. It's gone all the way to the seat of Gentile authority, all the way to the capital city, and there it is, unstoppable, unhindered. You can even kill the man who is the messenger, but you can't stop his message. And that's the, one of the great theme of the book of Acts. Luke is literally emphasizing the incredible authority of Jesus being exercised over the world through the preaching of the gospel. Here's a quote from Calvin. He says, More was achieved by these few contemptible little men against all the stormiest commotions of the world with the humble sound of the human voice than if God had thundered openly from heaven. That is the story, the remarkable story of the book of Acts. The power of God's word, unstoppable power to subdue nations, to bring people into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to him and to his worship. Which is why a companion theme of the book is prayer. Because who on earth has the faith to proclaim God's message boldly against all the opposition that these men faced and death at the end of it? Do you have faith, Ben? I don't have faith. But the apostles were always praying and inviting prayers that they would be bold in their proclamation. So prayer is a big theme in this book. We don't depend on our own strength. My goodness, Calvin nails it. These contemptible little men. That's all you and I are at best. But there's great power from on high to give us faith to communicate a message that is so powerful. No one can stop it. Scriptures call it healing for the nations. We have that healing power, knowledge of it here, the recipe right in these pages of Scripture. Another theme of this book is joy in the face of suffering and persecution. Joy in the Lord seeming to abound even and maybe even in the midst of or because of trials and difficulties and imprisonments and beatings. We noted, we noted earlier in the summer when we preached on being willing to suffer shame for the gospel, to join, Paul says to Timothy, join me, don't be ashamed, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You remember that? That was, uh, I think, our second sermon in the series of this summer. And we noted the, a little episode in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, where the apostles who were preaching there in Jerusalem were brought before a council and really faced the threat of death at that moment. It was a really intense moment, and here they are, in front of a drug before a council, arrested for their preaching and teaching in Jesus' name, and they barely get off the hook or scrape through that, and then um, 
what they end up doing is being flogged and told never to speak in Jesus' name again. And how, what was their response? It's an amazing response. It says in Acts 5, 41 to 42, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer at shame for his name. Is that your response to sh being shamed for Jesus? No. Very, at least in my experience, speaking for myself, no. But it should be. It can be. And we want to look at the book of Acts and see if we can't appropriate with God's help, some of this spirit. I mean, it's like I've said this before about this. It's this, they didn't have to stop. They weren't like going, hanging their heads and then somebody like Max comes along. This is what Max does among us here and as a staff all the time. And he's like, guys, you know, God is good. And there's so much reason to be rejoicing. Actually, we should consider ourselves worthy to that we, we were counted worthy to suffer shame. Remember that, guys. And then they finally, you know, pull some rejoicing out of their hat. No, they just, they just rejoiced. It was like it welled up within them as a natural or supernatural response to this persecution. I'd like to tap into some of that for myself. And I'd like to see that spirit pervade in our midst with God's help. That's a theme in the book of Acts. Those are some of the main themes, I believe. And it's all very exciting the book of Acts is dramatic and exciting, and these themes are glorious and exciting. But there are some real interpretive challenges that we face as we come to the book of Acts. There's a lot of amazing and exciting stuff happening, but how do we evaluate our experience here and now in our day against the experience of the people at this time in the book of Acts, here at the beginning of the launch of this glorious mission into the world with the help and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of things happening, dramatic things, supernatural things. How do we evaluate our day-to-day -day experience in light of these words? That's one of the real challenges as we come to the book. There's appearances of angels. There's supernatural signs. There's miracles of healing. There's visions in the night. What of all this is normative for us. That's a real challenge to sort through as we come to the book. Another way of looking at this problem is by asking, what is descriptive and what is prescriptive in the book of Acts? What is just being described and we can take it for what it is? And what is being prescribed? What is being commanded? What are we being told to implement or should expect to see happening among us today. Just because something is described as happening doesn't mean it's necessarily something God is prescribing for us today. I want to turn to a really obvious and easy example, not even in the book of Acts, just so we can see that this is something we all understand and can agree about. One obvious example occurs in 2 Timothy 4.13. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak which I left in, at Troas with Carpus. What are you supposed to do with that? It's in God's word. Timothy, when you come and visit me, bring the cloak. It's getting cold here. I would like my coat, please. 
Cyan left his coat at my house for like six months, and the other day he showed up at small group just to retrieve his coat. What do you do with that? It's in Scripture for a reason. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable and good for our instruction. But how do you get instruction from that? Well, there's certainly implications. It helps us understand Paul's close relationship with his, his son in the faith, Timothy. They're very close. Close enough he could say, could you bring my coat, please, when you come visit me? We can also learn how we should relate to one another and how we should help one another in the church. Lots of lessons probably we could glean from this. But it's not a direct command to you. Paul is gone. The cloak is gone. We're not called upon of God to deliver a cloak to Paul. It's descriptive, not prescriptive, not in an immediate sense or direct sense. Now, there are many things in the book of Acts that are like this, that are descriptive but not prescriptive, things that are not normative or that are normative in part but not completely. And few of them are easy, as easy to discern as that is episode with the cloak. They're really difficult. It takes a lot of hard work and study and figuring out. And even after you've done all that hard work and study, you will find that the greatest minds in the church have not figured it out yet. There are questions that remain. Things are not as clear as we wish they were. Okay? And we're going to hit that, all of us, as we come to the book of Acts. Particularly difficult are the manifestations of God's spirit in the form of spiritual gifts in the church. How many of those were tied to that extraordinary moment and are not normative for us today? How many of them? Any of them? All of them? These are real questions and they're not easy to resolve. As we work through the amazing events here in Acts, there are two extreme positions that we must avoid. The first is that everything in Acts that the Lord approves of is something that should be implemented here among us today that we should expect to have. That's one, I think, extreme position. Everything that we see in the book of Acts, we should expect to be manifested here among us today. And the other extreme is that nothing in the book of Acts that seems extraordinary should be happening among us today. Those are two extreme positions that the truth is somewhere in the middle, but where exactly in the middle? is hard to determine. And that's by God's choice. And so I am not going to try to resolve all of our tensions for us and answer all of our questions because I think if we tried, we would get lost in that, down that rabbit hole for a long time and never plumb the depths of it. What I want us to do is keep our eye, we'll have to talk about those things, we'll have to make some statements about it, but I want us to keep our eye on the main thing. And Luke, I think, makes it clear what the main thing is. My goal in leading us through Acts is not to answer every question, but to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is the word of God growing and advancing as it is boldly and faithfully preached. That's the main thing of Acts. This is such a theme that it even overwhelms in significance and importance the miracles themselves. The miracles that attend the preaching of the word often 
are just used immediately by the apostles as an excuse to preach the word and to explain that that miracle didn't come from them, it came from Jesus, and I want to tell you about him. Preaching is the main thing, and the power of the gospel message is the main thing, and I want to try to keep it the main thing as we go along through this study. Okay, lastly, why do I think that our church needs the book of Acts? We need to remember our mission. The mission Jesus put before us, put foot before his disciples in, in Matthew 28, the mission that continues and it starts to be worked out and implemented and progresses through the book of Acts is our mission still today. We are working in line with this What's happening in Acts, we are the continuation of it, even this many thousand years later here today. It is still at work. Still, The kingdom of God is still expanding. It is still being preached. We still need to see it preached boldly with power. We still depend upon the Holy Spirit to bless that work and to grow his church. The gospel is still going to the nations, and we want to be a part of that. I want us to be a part of that. I want us to recommit ourselves to that mission. We need to be on mission. We need to remember what that mission is. And we need to be on mission together. There is a wonderful togetherness that we see in the book of Acts. The sweetest togetherness and sense of community and sharing in all things and standing together Credible solidarity among the people of God in the book of Acts. We need to be on mission together. Being on mission together creates the deepest bonds of affection and solidarity. Ask any war veteran. They know this well. To fight in a unit to face the enemy together, to train and to work and to fight and to suffer and to, lo- and to lose and to win and all of the things that go into fighting in combat build incredible, the deepest bonds of affection and commitment. Some of the deepest you see, but there are deeper ones still and that is doing those things in service of the Lord Jesus Christ and suffering for his cause and his name. If we... If we recommit ourselves as a church to being on mission together, it will forge bonds among us as we face oppositions and challenges, as we lose some and win others, as we share in the work together, each of us doing our part. It will grow our commitment to one another, our affection for one another. When the Apostle Paul, you remember when he left Ephesus, I think it was, in Acts, is this Acts 20, Stephen? In Acts 20, Paul departs from Ephesus, this wonderful scene down at the beach. He's getting onto the ship, and he's leaving, and he says, you won't see my face again. And they fall on his neck, and they're crying, and they're kissing him. The deepest affection is forged by sharing in the gospel ministry together with with one another. It'll grow our love. It'll, It'll grow our love and our commitment to each other. Being on mission is challenging. Satan hates the church when it is given 
in faith to its mission. And he wants to destroy it. To be on mission in the Great Commission sense is to go on the offensive. It is to strike into enemy territory, to seek to take ground from him. And it, what is it? Does, does Satan give up ground willingly? No. It is to invite counterattack and defensive measures and things get hostile real quick if we, if we are on mission together. Acts helps us see and expect that to happen. It's, it's just part of the story of Acts and you'll just see it. It's like every day, every time they preach, there's something, there's something glorious that happens and something really hard that happens that attends it almost always. And it's a mixture of both. Acts helps us take that in stride and see that, expect it and see it as kind of pretty normal and not get flustered about it. But it also shows that whatever opposition Satan throws at us is not a reason to be a coward or to hold back because what we see the overpowering force of the word of God against all opposition. You can't stamp it out and you can't kill it. In fact, one of the bad strategies of Satan is to kill an apostle, to, kill a, to make a martyr out of a believer in Jesus Christ. It, it, was, it was so notorious that throughout the history of the church, it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You kill a, a man that, that, that's willing to suffer in that way and give his life for Jesus, and everybody stands there, many people stand back and say something, there must be something to this. He's willing to give up his life in that horrible way for Jesus? I'm interested. I want to know about Jesus. It says, well, the book of Acts starts to show us the fulfillment, the, the, the meaning of Jesus' words in Matthew when he says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it, will not overpower it. We, I have always tended to think that that's Jesus saying that when Satan comes at us, we'll be protected. But what it really means is that Satan will not be able to stand against our offensives as we bring the gospel message into his territory and try to rescue souls from destruction. He, the gates of hell will not be able to stand against us. Now, it may cost you your life. It may cost you some friends. It may cost you your job. But what are you here for? What are you here for? We're here to serve our master and advance his cause at whatever cost to ourselves with the promise of great reward and victory. Being on mission is challenging, but that challenge is something that we should engage. Being on mission together brings great joy to the church. There's this incredible overcoming joy that pervades the book of Acts, a joy forged in the fires of persecution and difficulty. We want, I want that joy for us here, a joy that really can't come any other way than us joining together, banding together, fighting together. There's just a joy in sharing together in the work, and I want, the, I want to seek the Lord's help to have that joy in abundance among us as we give ourselves by faith to the mission of Jesus. Now lastly, being on mission together and enjoying its fruits is a gift of the Holy Spirit. 
This is not something that we can just sort of say, oh, I got inspired. Let's give it a try. Let's get on mission. Let's work this up in ourselves. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That is so clear from the book of Acts. We don't have this power in ourselves or of ourselves. We don't even have a motivation to engage in the cause of Jesus of ourselves. We depend on the Holy Spirit. And so as we come to this study of the book of Acts, I want us to approach it prayerfully, that God would give us an extra, fuller measure of his Holy Spirit that would give us faith to advance his cause here in this town and wherever we're led as a church. We depend on him for this good thing. So I'd like to ask a couple of you to stand and pray, lead us in prayer as a church. There's a microphone. Somebody want to run this to? Oh, you got a microphone. That's awesome. Levi was prepped. Would there be a couple of volunteers who would lead us in prayer that God would bless us as we come to this study of Acts with the gift of his Holy Spirit and empowerment from on high? Who would like to do that? It doesn't matter who. Raise a hand. Okay, Ben Burlingham, one more. And Denver McDaniel back here in the back, Levi, when he's done. Okay? Thank you, men. Our Father, we come to you humbly now asking that you please would give us of your spirit. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be active and um, that we would not quench him as he uh, is at work. Uh, We pray, Lord, for the salvation of the nations. Lord, we know that your son is desirous and jealous of a a great kingdom and we pray that you would please accomplish this in the work uh, of your church we pray lord that you would equip us that you would cause us to humbly depend on you to not uh, grow fearful uh, but instead to uh, know that your work is um, is uh, an eternal work that is um, going to accomplish an eternal uh, glory for your son We pray, Lord, that you would be with us and uh, that over these weeks that we would come to desire to see the expansion of uh, your kingdom here right in Bloomington. We pray in Christ's name. Father, it is pride and fear of man that keeps us from speaking truth. We pray that you would grant us humility and fear of you that would and it would propel us to speak truth and to count it as joy when we suffer persecution and trial and tribulation and ridicule for your sake and we pray that as we study the book of acts as it's preached over the next several months, that you would soften our hearts and open our ears, that we would receive the word in faith, and that it would produce life within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brothers.